0: Uh, I feel like we've had three or four conversations that uh, the world is not privy to that have uh, that could have changed the whole course of civilization here and uh, <laughs> we don't have them on tape.
1: Yeah, I don't know about all that, but uh, yeah, and I don't know how much you're going to edit out, but uh, yeah, viewers yeah. are wondering like why my voice sounds one way at one point and my voice <laughs> sounds one way at another point is because we're doing this over
0: multiple recordings, but it's all good. So That's right. That's here we right. are. Here we are. I- yeah. Absolutely. Here we are. And we're back to it. You got a busy, uh, so you've been pretty busy lately. Obviously you've been, you've been working.
1: Yeah. It turns out uh, racism doesn't stop. So uh, yeah, I'm on the grind studying it and talking to people about it and doing my thing. So here we are.
0: You got books that have come out, you've coined terms, you've done research. Um, and I think the audience, I mean, that's something really, I wanted to really explore again, kind of your research and some of the things you're finding um you know the the hegemonic whiteness and and that could you tell us a little bit about kind of what your your main thrust of that research is
1: yeah so a lot of my work as a sociologist has been studying whiteness in particular white identity formation so how uh, white folks gain a sense of their whiteness race uh, their sense of identity how they make sense of a racialized world and their place within it Uh, So one of the big things I did a few years back was uh, to ground this study in an empirical comparison of a white supremacist organization and a white anti-racist organization. So these would be, uh, we can think of these as the proverbial, you know, ultimate good and bad white folks, right? You got the the white nationalists, white supremacists on one side that are holding down the the kind of evil, dark side of, of whiteness, if you will, and then you got uh, the white people that are trying to fight against this and a lot of people think are the, are the really good uh, white folks that are trying to challenge white supremacy in all its various iterations. And we know that they're very different politically. We know that they're very different ideologically. They both have completely different and antithetical goals to one another. One group wants to the, the nation to return to a form of Jim Crow, of, of segregation, to have white only spaces, right? This is a part of the white nationalist project. Some of the ugly manifestations we saw of that project uh, in Charlottesville a few years back, right? Um, and then you have the white anti-racists that are trying to fight against all the ways in which white supremacy is institutionalized in our legal processes, in our educational, um, structures, uh, and in their everyday lives, trying to fight against some of the, the learned prejudicial behaviors and attitudes and sentiments that they have. So we know those, those folks are different. But what I did is I compared the two to look for the similarities between them, and actually found a lot of striking similarities in how they made sense of what whiteness was, the ideals that they have of what a good white person should be, were really similar across those uh, sides. And, and they both held a lot of assumptions and beliefs about whiteness that were really similar. Um, they both were really paternalistic toward folks of color, right? Um, the white nationalists often thought the people of color were biologically just different and inferior and somehow needed to be kind of helped in order so that they could engage in their segregation and separation project, right? Whereas the white anti racists didn't share that same project or goal with the white nationalists, but still felt that uh, people of color, especially black people had been really harmed and hurt from the legacy of slavery. And because of that needed to be helped along, right? So they both had this kind of paternalistic orientation with folks of color, both really fetishized um, blackness and brownness in ways um, that they kind of used to credentialize themselves, both like approach friendships with people of color as this kind of, you know, get out of racism free card, right? Like I can't be a racist or I'm a good white person because I'm friends with this black person, right? Or I know history or random trivia about, um, you know, Latino history in the United States. And and would kind of use that as a way of of credentializing themselves, right? So, you know, they're both very different projects. Don't, Don't get me wrong, but they both were thinking about and addressing whiteness and race relations in really similar ways. And that was the kind of big so what uh and surprising conclusion of, of my work. And that's in that book Whitebound that you that you mentioned.
0: So that's I mean it's fascinating stuff because it kind of gives you it points you in a direction for everyone to work on. I mean it's kind of like okay how does that come about? How do those shared beliefs, how do we learn that? How does America how do we as Americans, as babies, you know obviously we don't know that. So where are we learning that? How are we, how are we catching that information? And then how do we how do we transition or how do we move those structures? You know, is that Yeah,
1: that's a great question. I mean, the how-to part of this is what I call this theory or framework of hegemonic whiteness. And it's this idea that both these groups and a lot of you know white people in between these two polarities are really taught, we're socialized to pursue this ideal of whiteness. So, this this ideal, what I call hegemonic whiteness, uh, which is borrowed from this term of Antonio Gramsci, who was this Italian Marxist who had the unfortunate chance of living under the fascist regime of of Mussolini. So he wrote a lot of this stuff when he was imprisoned and came up with this idea of hegemony. And hegemony is a form of power and it works through our consent. And the idea is that we consent to our own oppression because we believe that it's normal, natural, good moral, etc. Right. Mm -hmm. I took this idea of kind of consenting through oppression, how white people believe in things and consent to things that end up actually harming themselves, but they do it because they feel like it's right, or it's good, or in this case, is the ideal way of being white that they think they should be, right. Mm. So both white nationalists, anti-racists, and a lot of white people in between uh, believe in these ideals of whiteness that we're always taught, right, that we should be incredibly good at everything that we do that we should be moral that we're intelligent that we're rational all these kind of ideals that are shared in the kind of Western construction of what it means to be good and smart and in charge but to be so, clear
0: they don't they don't they don't consciously trying to be a good white they think that's just normal people this is how people are The the norm which is whiteness kind of normalized in this in this country right is that kind of because they're not if you were to say that to someone they would be like, I'm not trying to be white. I'm just trying to be, you know, I'm trying to be, that's the whole colorblind thing, but. Yeah, exactly.
1: It, it operates on both a conscious and, and unconscious level, right? So for both these groups that are hyper-conscious about race, they would make conscious decisions about what it means to be a good white person, right?
0: Okay. But okay. a lot of
1: people that don't fit into these polarities are still producing and pursuing these ideals, even if they don't explicitly name them, right? So that's mm-hmm. a really great point that you, that you bring up. So this ideal, what I call hegemonic whiteness, is an ideal that is so great, that is so superior, that is so high, that no white person could achieve it.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: It's so idealized, right? You have to be so perfect and so great, right? But it's the tale that we tell to white children all the time, that you can grow up to be anything and the world is your oyster, and you are the captain of your domain. And anything that you want to pursue, you should be able to get. But then it turns out most white people, for example, aren't doing that well economically, right? They're much better off on average than folks of color. I don't want listeners to get me wrong, like uh, systematic racism that benefits white people on average is a very real thing. But most white people are hurting more and more when we look at our economic situation, right? But they won't translate this as a racial problem, right? They'll translate this as a kind of economic problem, or if they do think about it in terms of race, they'll blame people of color. And that's exactly what happens here. We set white people up in this kind of Faustian bargain in which they're taught, I should be able to get anything that I want. And when they don't, when they invariably fail to reach this impossible standard, that has been set for them based on the purity and the superiority and the, uh, the assumptions about whiteness, then they blame folks of color. They blame immigrants, right? They blame the quintessential other that is supposedly unfairly taking these things from them, right? And that's the bind that whiteness is in. And that's why I called the book White Bound. Because Mm -hmm. white people, it's a double entendre of the word bound. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. are both chasing kind of uh, in terms of a trajectory. They're bound toward this ideal. But they're tied to it. They're bound to it at the same time. Because it's really hard to unthink and undo and unpractice these normative ideals of whiteness. Because when white people really do start to do that. I've even found in my research, many people think maybe they're not white, that they're mixed with something or that they're Uh somehow uh, unrational or they're crazy or whatever. Think about the things that were said about um, John Brown, for example, that he was Uh God's angry man, that he was crazy, that he was a traitor to whiteness. Right. Uh Well, that's what happens when you really oppose these ideals. People think you're crazy. People think Uh you're strange. People think something's really wrong with you or Uh you're or maybe you're just not white. Right. And so that that's kind of the conclusion of, of some of my research.
0: Could you talk a little bit about how how intentionally this was put in? And 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 I mean, I know that and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, the English colonizing the Irish, there was a lot of, of talk about race and things. And they were kind of experimenting with these ideas of of, uh, of breaking people out scientifically into different categories and measuring and science and stuff. And then, as they came to America, and then they, they, you know, people getting together, uh, fomenting rebellion. Uh, there was a desire to keep people separated, right, so that it could be easier to control. These are some of the beginnings of the American whiteness project, right? Or does it go further? Tell me a little. I, I know, I, I know some stuff, but I'm sure you know a lot more about it. Yeah. So the.
1: The, the project of, of race, right, the very concept of, of race is very new in the historical scene, right? Um, and it, it kind of dovetails with colonization. So as Europeans who were writing many of the books that we're studying now and, and, and have written the kind of history of what stands as capital Age history, they were encountering many people in all their travels, right? And they were trying to categorize them. So you have philosophers and you have scientists, you have so many European thinkers that are trying to categorize the world and the people they're in, right? Because they see all these physical differences mm-hmm. and they start attributing physical differences to maybe moral differences or differences in intelligence or in dif- differences by traits, right? And this is a concept of race that exists to this day, where we really think that race exists in the blood in the bile, in the bones, right, of, of who we are. But geneticists, genomicists, anthropologists, sociologists now, especially after the mapping of the human genome that has been accomplished now, show that there is no biological genetic reality to race, right, that is while we look very different in terms of skin tone or hair texture or height or facial features, all these different things, none of those correlate purely with race and they have no underlying genetic reality to them, right? There's no correspondence between them, right? In fact, the crazy thing about this that we've learned is that if you take two people who we would identify and would self-identify as white, on average in the United States, and you take uh, two people who would on average be identified and identify as black, right? you're more likely to see genetic similarities between the white and the black person than you are between the two average white people and the two average black people. So race on a genetic level just doesn't correspond with the social ways that we have used to categorize humanity, right? So that project of categorization was a rationalization and a legitimation project for colonization, for slavery, right? For inequality. That's the work that it does.
0: Is this like just a bad timing thing where colonization was taking place at the same time as like scientific uh, genome? I mean, these these studies that were done, I mean, because they were classifying birds and they were classifying plants and they were exploring the world. Uh, Europeans were exploring and trying to scientifically, you know, categorize everything. But at the same time, you know, they, they start this exploitation project. I mean, science meets up with, travel meets up with the need to, uh, you know, for more labor or whatever the case may be for them to hoard wealth into European countries. Mm-hmm. It seems like a timing thing. It all kind of came together at the right moment. I, I think
1: that's a part of the story. That's right. But it, to use a fancy academic word, it, it's co-constitutive, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's one is forming the other. One is the cause. One is the effect. And then the effect is also the cause of the I thing see. that's yeah. not the effect, right? So that's- you, you have colonization, you have the Enlightenment project, which in especially in Europe and as this spreads out is the decline of religion as an influence and an explanation for everything. So science starts being the, the asserting itself as being able to explain things that religion cannot, right? So you have this contestation between things and both religion and science are still trying to categorize the world and, and the people therein. Right. So you have incredibly different theological justifications for slavery and colonization, even as you have secular and and materialist ones. Right. So you have ideas of what's called polygenesis, that all the different people around the world, all the different kind of races, as people are starting to call them, were formed differently by God. Right? and were formed in different gardens of Eden, where you had different Adams and Eves, where you had, you know, quote unquote, Negroid Adams and Eves and Caucasoid ones and Mongoloid ones, right? Okay. As a way of rationalizing the differences in race through mm-hmm. a theological framework. But then you had folks like uh, positing monogenesis, right? That then aligned with some of the scientific reasoning of Darwin, right? That everyone came from a single ancestor and all the, the variations that you see in humankind Are the result of environment right or the result of the different foods that we eat and the climates that they're in and so forth and then people start misinterpreting darwin and saying that darwin was you know arguing that the different races had different attributes right which which he never said right so you have all these arguments about race and religion and science that are corresponding at the same time by happenstance with colonization and exploration and then at the same time are providing the rationale for why certain people should be colonized and mm-hmm. other people should not right so it's co constitutive but both are happening at the same time and they're both the cause and the effect of one another
0: yeah i mean it reminds me of like the Portuguese asking the Pope for permission to come into Africa because they're they don't know Christ and to take them and teach them to take the savage, you know. But it's really in the background. They're like, we're going to use these folks to work, but we need justification, religious justification for us to get permission to even go in here and do this. Um, I mean, what a what a huge. Obviously, the impact is is uh, is destroying the world, and we talk about this a little bit. Just the the. Um, the impact of the project in general. So, where I mean, according to your research, right? We kind of have everybody kind of falls in this line of being socialized in whiteness. Where is the out? I mean, where? How do we? How do we shake from that? Because you and I, obviously, are white men. We've been we've been raised in this uh, in this country, and we've been socialized the way we are. And we both, you know, are struggling to find how to how to help, uh, you know, kind of ameliorate some of these things.
1: Yeah, that's the twenty thousand dollar question, isn't it? I mean, what do we do with this? How do we, how do we get out of it? Can we get out of it? You know, what do we do? Um, Yeah, and you know, it's interesting when you look at the the literature about whiteness over the historical record because folks of color were writing about and talking about and thinking about white people in really critical ways that white people were not thinking about themselves, right? And, and that's part of the again, the kind of Faustian bargain of whiteness is it really blinds white people to whiteness, right? And I I tell my students this all the time who will take classes with me at the university and the classes will be called like ethnicity and race, right, and something like that. And I'll ask the white people, the white students in the class, like how many of you, when you got up in the morning, thought about your whiteness and what your whiteness would get you or get you out of today, right? Mm -hmm. And most of the white people were like, I know, I never think about that, right? And the folks of color are like, well, I think about my blackness or my brownness or my indigeneity or, you know, my Asianness, whatever it is, and what how I'll have to navigate that, especially at a predominantly white campus, right? How will that impact my life? What do I have to look out for? What do I have to do, not do, try to avoid, try to strategize, et cetera,
0: right?
1: Because the very thinking about race, quote unquote, we've kind of conflated with like issues pertaining to people of color. As if
0: white people don't have race, as if race doesn't impact white people's lives. Well, like white people have worked their way out of the conversation. So white people have done this to black people. And then black people have gotten this done to themselves. And black people have this problem. I mean, white people have kind of worked our way out of the <laughs> The, the, right. line of, uh, yeah. the line of yeah i mean i mean that's that's how it got
1: portrayed for for many years where the, the race question as it was called for many years slowly is evolved to be called you know the negro problem or then mm. the black problem or you know something like that right where it's something that's located in the bodies and the culture and the lives of folks of color as if white mm-hmm. people are somehow like well we did bad things before but now we're just the normal natural de facto human yeah. Right, right. But what that's part of my work that I'm pushing back against. And part of that answer lies in a lot of the research, the philosophy, the thinking of folks of color, right? I mean, back in 1860, there's this wonderful essay by this man, uh, African-American man, William uh, Wilson, who often wrote under the pen name, Ethiop, And he wrote this wonderful essay called, What do we do with the white people, right? <laughs> and it's partly tongue in cheek because he's writing in 1860, but sure. it's also really incisive because he's going, you know, what do we really do now after the Civil War, now mm-hmm. with Reconstruction, right, with all the fundamental social changes that were occurring in the United States, largely due to the Reconstruction Amendments, so the 13, 14, 15, mm-hmm. like, what do we do with white people? Do we mm-hmm. teach them about what's going on? Do we ignore them? Do we... Kind of try to bring them into our communities in a way that they weren't coming into our communities before, that is to see us as equals. Mm-hmm. How do we deal with this? Right. And there was no one coherent answer. But the, the, by asking the question shows a really profound necessity of having to deal with the question of whiteness mm. and to return back to Du Bois, right, which you mentioned. So Du Bois' whole notion of double consciousness, which he raises in The Souls of Black Folk again in 1903, right, is about this kind of navigating the color line, navigating the veil that he calls it, right, which separates white and black, right, as well as many others, but he was really concentrated on this black non-white color line, right of what do black folks have to do of necessity of survival where they have to know about the ways of white folk. Mm -hmm. But white folk don't have to know about the ways of black folk. White people can be oblivious to these things and live rather basic, okay lives. Mm -hmm. Whereas black folks have to know the ways of white folks in order to not be lynched, right? In order to buy a house, in order to navigate the grocery store, in order to navigate police interactions. I mean, this is the entire Black Lives Matter movement is based on this Duboisian supposition of, I have to know both the black world and the white world simply to survive and exist. And then what do I do with this fractured consciousness that now I have? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: How does that then affect me psychologically, morally, um, my self-esteem, right? What, what What does that mean? And then how is that fracture represented in education, in the law, in everywhere else in a world in which I don't really fit in a world that was made for white people. So, so how we get out of this, I think one of the places that we start is we start reading and studying how folks of color have been reading and studying and trying to answer these questions, right? To take our cues as white people from what black people in particular, but folks of all colors, have been writing and thinking and saying about, quote unquote, race, because the the question of race from its origin has been the legitimation and the rationalization for inequality. So to really unthink race or to get out of it means to fight inequality and racism. If we're not talking about racism and inequality, and you think you're talking about race, you've missed
0: it, because that's at the heart of it. How do we clear that first hurdle? You know, mm-hmm. how do we get over that hump? Because the people I talk to kind of on the street, white folks I talk to, they don't want to even talk white. They don't even want you to say white people. They don't even want you to say black people. I, I say black, they say, oh, you said black in front of a black person instead of saying, you know, so there's such a such a a, a bottom level of information that's kind of circulating, I think. How do we overcome that initialness? That's the so the this central.
1: I think goes back to um. A kind of omnipresent debate about, you know, will, will ideas change our material conditions, or material conditions change our ideas? And again, I, I think this is co-constitutive. That this has to be a, a multi-fronted attack, right? Yeah, um, sure. You know, I'm a firm believer. I'd be I'd be a hypocrite if I if I wasn't as a as a professor of sociology that education really matters, right? That we need to have more classes, more conversations about this. And, you know, as we're talking about this, we have state legislatures across the United States that are, you know, in a tizzy about this idea of critical race theory. I I think most of them don't have a single idea of what critical race theory is. And I doubt that some of them could even spell critical race theory. But, you know, the, the point is that they kind of code this as an attack on whiteness, as an attack on the nation, which itself is telling that they code the nation as a white nation, right? As something for them and by them and only for them. So Mm -hmm. there's a white nationalist project at the heart of these kind of mainstream debates over how we can or even should uh, talk about race, not just out on the street, as you say, But in the very places where we should be, in schools, right? Mm -hmm. In universities, right? That's a pitched debate right now. Iowa has banned the discussion of some of this. Other states are moving toward this, right? So I think fighting that, right? Contacting our legislature, contacting our, our representatives, right? Making our voice heard about why it's important to talk about these issues, okay. to sort out these issues, and to go the other way, not to ban this stuff, but to make making the teaching of race and racism and white supremacy uh, not banned, but an imperative that has to be taught early on. Mm-hmm. Look at Germany, for example, as a case study, right? So Germany has been, um, You know, seen by many as enacting some of the most violent forms of white supremacy we have ever seen, right? Through the Nazi regime, right? So what does Germany do? They don't run from it. They don't ban the teaching of it, right? They ban some of the horrible incarnations of that, where you can't give a Nazi salute out in public or hang a swastika and those type of things. Instead, what they do is they make people start learning about how that came about early on in their primary school education, where every year children have to face this, deal with it, learn about it, not to make them feel bad, not to make them hurt, but to learn how not to repeat those mistakes again, right? We don't do that in this country, right? Ironically, we will say things about 9-11, never forget,
0: Mm -hmm. right? But then
1: slavery, let's not talk about it, Critical race theory, let's not talk about it, let's ban it, right? Mm -hmm. That really shows you what they think is important, what they think is appropriate trauma to be remembered, dealt with, processed. Yeah, to heal from. That's right, and to heal from, right? So that's one of the places, right? Fight that in our education. The Mm -hmm. other place is to deal with the material inequalities of it, right? We can talk about this till the cows come home, as they say. But if we're not living next to one another, right, working with one another, right, Mm -hmm. if we continue to see rising levels of black-white segregation in our major cities, like we've been seeing, so that we are at a point in our major cities where when we look at the black-white color line, we are more segregated today than we were in the 1950s, Mm -hmm. right? The closest we ever came to an integrated country, people might be surprised to hear, was in the mid to late 1980s. Since then, we have become more segregated as a nation, mm-hmm. even as we had a black president and people think that we're, quote unquote, post-racial. Right, <laughs> this right. type of bizarre mental gymnastics to try to flip our way out of reality. right? Yeah. So we've got to deal with segregation, we've got to deal with inequality, right, we've got to deal with wage and wealth gaps, we have to deal with the fact as folks from Dr. King to Malcolm X singled out, you know, Sunday mornings is the most segregated time in the United States, because we worship in segregated places, right. So we've got to look at our social structures, look at our housing, look at our houses of worship, look at our employment, look at education, look at all the places that we are, we are separated
0: and deeply unequal. Well, I, I mean, we talk about two, I mean, Black people are 13% of the population, r- r- roughly, right? 13, 14%. So not, in this country, I mean, it's pretty intentionally white, right? We stopped the Chinese from coming in. we stopped Black people from coming. We pretty much, I mean, Oregon was like, had it in their state chapter, charter, like, this is a white state. So we're not going to let any Black people live here. So we've kind of got the remnants of this in this country in the fact that we're 70% European or 70% white. I should say, because Europeans pretty much, you know, changed their names and lost their language in order to fit into being white as well, right? That's pretty much, so So the bridge, I mean, you know, you can't kind of reverse that, just the demographic kind of shift here, I think, but but so the bridge for these majority of white people who don't have to deal with this just by pure numbers and, and pure historical avalanche of this information, you know, The bridge, it seems to be to me, or and and tell me what you think about this is that how do you make it make sense for white people to deal with for themselves too? Because there's a piece of us as white people that we miss out on. There's a piece of connectivity, there's a piece of our soul to see other people get treated this way in the name of this elevation of ourselves when we know we're not that you know we know we're not freaking better than anyone really I mean we got problems we got all these issues we keep ourselves that pressure on ourselves but how do you create this bridge to say look this is better for when it, when you take care of yourself and you heal yourself this heals everyone this takes care this is a, a project that you should take on for everyone for the world but but for yourself and your family you know I mean I Ironically, this is, you know, one of the tenets of critical race theory that's
1: called interest convergence. And the principle is that white people generally won't change their ways and won't deal more equitably with folks of color, until they see their own interests benefited by that. And that's a kind of pessimistic rendering, right? I'll admit, right? That was, so white people aren't going to change until they see a way of benefiting from it. Right. right. Well, like any, uh, you know, ethno-racial group, it, it's not a monolith, right? So white people think about these things in very different ways. There are segments of the white population, you know, that I think do buy the hype, that do believe they are more superior than folks of color, like that mm-hmm. don't see themselves as bad and down and being oppressed except unfairly and temporarily, right? If those things were removed, Mm. their natural, genetic, moral, divine, whatever, culture would elevate them to the stature that they should be attaining, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of white people who don't think like that too, right? So they're different segments. So I think that principle of interest convergence in which they see how racism is also hurting white people could convince some hearts and minds, right? Uh-huh. I do think also you can make moral appeals, right? This was a part of abolition in some quarters, right? To make moral appeals to white people about mm-hmm. how wrong it was. Obviously, there was a lot of hypocrisy in the abolition movement, and also that didn't sway everybody, but it did sway some people like like John Brown, who right? mm-hmm. <laughs> I mentioned before, right? you know, who, you know, took that to the extreme, you know, whether we're talking about out in bloody Kansas or many of the other, you know, things that he did. Um, But I think, you know, the the larger kind of more structural thing, thinking as a sociologist, is really to change many of the laws and um, the institutional makeup of how people get jobs, how they can get housing, how they get raises, how they get promotions, Hiring and firing, right? When we see most of the progress toward integration, one, and equality, two, um, we see that as a large part of the result of civil rights laws that were hard-fought laws that came out of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, that now we're seeing them being shipped away, right? The Voting Rights Act, for example, was obliterated with taking out, I think it was Section 4B, if I remember, which was, was federal preclearance. What this meant is that the states of the former Confederacy, because states are allowed to use their own voting procedures under the Constitution, oh. right, um, had to get federal preclearance right, from the Department of Justice. Here's what we wanna do, guys. Does this system look okay? All right, we have the green light now, we can do it. Well, mm-hmm. as soon as that was taken out, the next day, several Southern states implemented voting rights procedures that had been prior turned down as being discriminatory discriminatory Mm -hmm. for folks of color, right? Mm -hmm. So here you have a law that was working. It was helping, right? It wasn't solving all the problems. It was in the right direction, right? And was neutered. It was taken apart by the Supreme Court, right? Mm -hmm. And we're seeing the effect of that. Right, where it's becoming harder and harder for folks of color to exercise what should be a very easy to do constitutional right of just voting for your representatives. Right. So that's the example I like to turn to because if we're not allowing every single person to vote and every vote to be counted, we can't call ourselves a democracy. We but can't just, preach equality.
0: This, this project like, has been going on ever since. You know the Civil War, though. I mean, you know everybody can vote, no problem. And then they come up with rules, and then and then and then you got to fight that twenty years later. And then okay, now we're closer, but now you got to fight it again next twenty years. I mean, sure. at this pace, you know when does this when is when does it work? You know when does it start? That's a great point, and and that's why I
1: think both this kind of education and structural thing has to go side by side. Right? Mm-hmm. History tells us that one without the other will not work. Cause you'll have this kind of crass materialism that is hollow and then we'll just be chipped away at, and then we have to fight that battle over and over again. Yeah. Right? Or you have this kind of idyllic naivete and abstract liberalism of like, well, we should just join hands and sing Kumbaya and pray together. And that'll like, you know, we'll, will hug away the racism, you know, right, and right. that's ridiculous as well, but hearts and minds and social structures have to be changed simultaneously right? Mm -hmm. And we do see evidence of some of that happening, right? The racism of today, I would venture to say, is not as bad in as many ways than it was a couple hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. You don't have as many lynchings, and I'm saying that purposefully because lynchings still occur in -hmm. the contemporary United States of America. Mm -hmm. You do not have as many today as you did 100 years ago, Right? And that's because some hearts and minds have been changed. Some structural structures have been changed. The big fight, I think, that is the next stage that should be, I would call, the second civil rights movement, comes out of the first. The big thing that I think white people learned from the civil rights movement of the 50s, 60s, and 70s was that racism is bad. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. it. Nobody
0: wants, <laughs> right Nobody wants
1: to be a racist. That's, like that's a right, bad. end I of, of lesson. Yeah. There you go. It's no longer cool
0: to be racist. It's no
1: longer cool to be racist. It's like a racial slur for white people. Now, if you call a white person a racist, they'll freak out right uh, you oh no
0: cracker honky anything but don't say racist that's
1: right <laughs> those those slurs that folks of color have been call, calling white folks for years right yeah from honky to cracker <laughs> to oh to all these things that doesn't bother that anybody. doesn't hurt white people right? <laughs> nah. white people don't even know a lot of those words anyway they're like what <laughs> yeah. do you call me i don't know. i don't understand right <laughs> so it doesn't work <laughs> but you call a white person a racist and they'll freak out because they've yeah. learned it's it's taken a moral connotation Mm-hmm. So we shifted, we we changed the barometer, the yeah. moral barometer on racism, right? That's mm-hmm. big, that's huge, that's right? Big. To that do that, big. to change cultural definitions is incredibly difficult. Mm-hmm. That was done, right? So now that means, okay, white people think that racism is bad, but they don't understand or and don't want to understand, because there's a lot of willful ignorance here about what that means for our social structures. So how that's translated is white people simply will do racist things as long as it's not called out for being racist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So that's the next step of educating and forcing through our laws, through our practices, through our policies, white people away from being able to do the racist things to mm-hmm. now learn that doing the racist things is just <laughs> as bad as being called the racist word. So it's a little bit of progress that we've made, but it's still woefully incomplete. And the evidence for that woeful incompletion is in the wealth gap, right? Mm -hmm. It's in the way that police treat Black and brown communities and the reason for the Black Lives Matter movement is evidence in the fact that people are freaking out over critical race theory, which is a humanizing project to try Mm -hmm. to show how all people are fundamentally equal and should be treated fundamentally equal, right? And how we get to that. So the evidence for the necessity of learning the impact of racism and the practice of racism within white communities is the next, I think, second civil rights movement that we need.
0: Okay, so now, what does is, what is the country look like without racism? Is... <laughs> Not the country that it is today. Right. What, what does the world look like without race, without white supremacy and without anti-Blackness? I mean, that, the... That's an incredible question.
1: I, I, it's a fundamental reworking of our politics, of our economic structures, of gender relationships, of, of so much that is intersected with exactly. and through race, right? Um, I, I don't believe, many people will, will disagree with me, I don't believe that our current structures and operations of capitalism today will work the same way without the presence of racism because racism helps the exploitation of labor. Mm -hmm. That's why so many within the working class are overrepresented when we're thinking about per capita representations, are overrepresented by black and brown people, right? So you have a large working class that is being hurt more and more and more. Many of our economic policies, which look to be purely economic driven decisions on the surface, are driven by questions of white supremacy, right? I and other economists that are attentive to race and so forth have been wondering as the population continues to uh, lessen in the amount of white people, right? That more and more of the population in the United States is becoming black and that population ages, right? What will happen with social security once a, a bigger chunk of that social security is going to older folks of color? It was fine when it was going to old white folks. What happens when it goes to old black and brown folks? Mm -hmm. I would venture to guess under our current ideology and practices, then all of a sudden it will get reframed as a government handout, as something undeserving. Oh, you can already see it. Yeah, you can already see the writing on the wall. So. These fundamental economic structures, parts of our safety net, part of the social contract that we think just needs to be there, right? That you work your life and by virtue of being old, have mm-hmm. deserved now to retire, to take it a bit easier for the next generation to help you, just as you help the generation that came before you, right? Mm-hmm. Basic tenet of social contract theory. Um, that can't exist without... Um, the, the racial exploitation system that we have today, right? Because the wealth that the United States built was built on the back of black and brown people, right? The wealth, the unequal distribution wealth around the globe has been built on the global color line, as Du Bois. Du Bois famously said that the color line belts the world, right? It's not a US thing only. We just have perfected some aspects of, of white supremacy. Um, so uh, th- your question really points to a kind of kind of Afrofuturism u- utopian like vision of the world of what would it mean for everyone to have dignity, right? Dignity not in an abstract sense. Dignity in their job, in their family, in their neighborhood, right? Uh, Cornell West famously said that justice is what love looks like in public. Mm, So what does it mean to make love and respect and dignity a cardinal principle of how our economic system works? Mm -hmm. Not based on competition and beating out other people by virtue of price, but instead to ensure that everyone has access to resources that they need because it is a fundamental part of what a dignified human life should look like. Mm, That's a completely different economic system and it means rethinking the assumptions of a, of an exploited labor class that is predominantly folks of color.
0: So how beautiful a thought though the fact that i think that that okay it's always hard to move and change and grow and it's very scary for a lot of people to think about a different way of you know this is the way it is this is the way it's been whatever we're going to keep it that way but bringing all those minds to the table in a, in a dignified way graceful solutions will rise I think if you have heads at the table in a a respect in that kind of manner, if you have global heads at the table in a a healthy, dignified, healed kind of way, if we're able to work to that point, I think that the solutions we we may not be able to even envision it, we may not even be able to fathom what those are. It's like some Star Trek, you know, we can't fathom how they got to that point. But at some point, brains came together in, in a way that was allowed to fully explore everything and, and, and I think that the graceful solutions will rise to the top if that were the case. I mean, I don't think that would be a big problem to envision in the next phase.
1: Yeah, I mean, when we look at the history of social change, it, and especially in this country and with, with the question of, of, of race and racial inequality, it's come from younger multiracial groups, right? Mm-hmm. Often led by younger folks of color, but that are, that are multiracial, right? So it's young people, it's not old white dudes like me it's, it's the younger folks of color that are pushing these issues, that are mm-hmm. cooperating, that are not just preaching this stuff, but by virtue of their own organization are practicing it mm-hmm. and are providing a model for the very thing that they're trying to speak into existence, right? They're already doing that in many of, of the ways. Well, how
0: beautiful were those, a lot of those thoughts coming out of the 60s, and a lot of the young people who were in all the different movements that were taking place because people were getting all that information, all that new information about Vietnam. They were getting information from television that they never had access to. And they were starting to come up with formulating all these new visions for the world. And the government was so scared. I mean, anarchy, you gotta keep everybody in control. You have to, you can't have a nation if everybody's envisioning something different. And so they, they come in and they squash and they quell all these movements that had potential to really shift us in great, amazing, fundamental ways that would, you know, probably give even those folks on top who are so scared of people taking their stuff a much better way of living on the planet than the short time we have here, you know? It's like, it's exciting to think about, and, and it's, it's also equally as sad to think about what happened to a lot of that. And how do you, I mean, it was such a unique moment in time. Again, you talk about timing. Uh, how do you recreate that kind of movement? Or is that movement always there with youth, with, with young people? Are they always looking to, to to challenge and to question and to push into the future—is that something that you know? You think, how do you recreate that the movements? But I guess the movements have always been here to make things better. So.
1: They're always been there, and they're they're always the seeds of of or, or they they come out, if you will, of the, of the conditions that necessitate them.
0: Right. So yeah,
1: sure. we have oppression, we have inequality. There are going to be people that fight against that as long as that exists. Right. Yeah. Um, so we're in this kind of moment right now of. Kind of deepening inequalities in many ways and a, and a retrenchment of that and a defense of white supremacy so you see movements like black lives matter right you see movements that are pushing back against that so as a student of, of history i think even the most amateur student can recognize that these things always kind of ebb and flow right you have crisis that you have victory uh, you have you have victories you have defeats um th- this is the way it goes and and we're we're along for the ride um, I'm afraid it'll be a long and bumpy ride. Um, yeah, you yeah. know, um, I think there's there's hope
0: and, and and so much of it is in each of us. You know, so much of this revolution is inside of you and inside of me and inside of, you know, just not to not to, you know, the sociological look at everything, you know, we're shaped by all these forces. but, you know, ultimately, this revolution takes place inside of each person. What am I gonna do to change my life? What am I gonna do to uh, uh, look at the world in a way that that makes it better for myself and for my family, for my immediate surroundings? And, and that's a tough project when you think, when you're taught things that you that are they tell you is gonna make your life better, and this is the thing for you, as opposed to listening to what your gut says. And I think when you talk about whiteness in particular, there's been so many times when we've had to work against our gut, you know, throughout the, the history of the country. So many times when we're taught that these people are like this and you're like this, even though you were friends with somebody. Now you're taught you can't be around them. You're taught that they're not as smart as you, or they're not as working hard as you, or they're taken from you. So it goes against what you what you know to be true. And so there's there's a moment I think in a lot of our lives where we're taught to. Not listen to ourselves as much, you know. Mm-hmm. Maybe as white people, and I think that's a that's a to regain that that desire to connect and that empathy for other people, and to that's a project in itself. You know what I mean? That's a project that you can take on, not you know I, I, if you're you know if you're willing to do it, and if you can kind of come to that kind of self awareness. But it would be better if you had social structures that encourage that, you know. Well, <laughs> so, it's, it's going to have to be.
1: So, you know, we can, we can make these sacrifices and we can do those things, but, you know, they will come with, with penalties and rewards. And so we, we have to have the collective willpower and understanding of what fighting for that type of social change necessitates. I think a lot of people romanticize the 1960s, but, Mm -hmm. you know, the 1960s were filled with lots of assassinations, right? Lots of murder, lots of hurt, lots of pain, Mm -hmm. a lot of families destroyed, right? Um, There were hard costs borne by people, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now we kind of tell a tale of social change came about because people wrote some slogans and went and marched. Right? Mm-hmm. That, that's not it. Um, we have to be prepared for, for the cost that this will necessitate.
0: Well, even what you're doing, I mean, you're stepping outside of the box of whiteness and this and I and the repercussions. I mean, I watched your thing on Tucker Carlson and I heard, you know, you told me a little bit about the the hate mail and the threats and stuff like that. Even stepping outside of that box that that you've been that, you know, I is prescribed for you. Is a daring is a is a is a risky prospect, you know. Having friends with people of color, having you know, uh, people of color stepping outside of their box, black people stepping out of the box that's prescribed for them is dangerous as ever, obviously on a lot of levels. But I mean, when we step outside of these boxes that social structures kind of provide for us, it will kill you. I mean, they'll they'll they, the the repercussions are pretty serious, right? I mean.
1: Yeah, that's why I think this can't be a kind of individualist level approach, right? Like, so, you know, again, we kind of tell this tale of activism as if, you know, one particular person stood up and said a brave thing and then people kind of rallied around them, right? Mm-hmm. But that's fundamentally just a kind of untrue story, right? Um You know, the the social change that has occurred has occurred largely because of masses of people that were organizing and doing mundane, everyday things to push back against the laws, the practices, the policies, Mm -hmm. the everyday talk, right? And facing abuse and dealing with it, seeking remedies from it, fighting back against it in any way that they could and sometimes losing anyway right so Mm -hmm. it it takes a certain belief right that change should and will eventually come because many of the changes that people fought for and that we're fighting for we won't see in our lifetime and even if we do that change isn't guaranteed it will be rolled back and, and people will fight back against that but I think the overall arc of history proves that we're moving closer and closer towards some of these
0: um, humanizing ideals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, that's true. And I think about kind of your life, and I think my life. I mean, we have a lot of parallels, obviously, um, just in, in you know pledging uh, Phi Beta Sigma and in, in kind of uh, our social circles and kind of how we grew up in different ways. Uh, you know, being having friends of different, uh, black friends and white friends and different friends like that, and having this this wonderful kind of um, experience that's not typically the norm, right, for a lot of white people, and having the and seeing the possibilities of what it look, what it what there's a potential out here, what what life could be like, you know, if you have if you have access to these different pieces of a person, like people have been cordoned off these pieces of humanity. You guys get this, we get this, you get that, we get this. And and when you pull these, when you pull people together and when you get people that are able to socialize and live with each other and kind of be around each other in a dignified manner, how much it brings to people's lives. I mean, the pieces that we're missing from each other like they're in each other. I mean, they're, they're encouraged in each other. I say we all have them, but they're encouraged by society in different groups and different ways. And so uh, can, you, can you speak to that a little bit about how, how uh, this work in particular and how your life kind of has, has been enriched and, and, and what ways you feel like it's, it might've been different had you just kind of grown up in a suburb somewhere a, or had an all white kind of uh, hyper segregated upbringing?
1: Yeah, so I, I grew up in the South in the in a predominantly African American community and, and my friends, my mentors, so many of the people that were really important in my life um, were black folks and, and black folks that had come of age in the civil rights movement. Um, people that were ex-Black Panthers, um, people that had pledged, you know, Black fraternities, uh, which, which helped, you know, kind of forge my path into, into pledging Phi Beta Sigma. Um, you know, that's very different than a lot of white Americans' experiences. You know, but at the same time, you know, I, I lived along the color line, right? So that was my neighborhood, that was my friend group and so forth. When, when I left that, you know, I was treated like any other white person and got all the benefits of white privilege that, that are uh, afforded to white people. And so that was a kind of schizophrenic, if you will, um, childhood experience of learning like the ways in which the color line operates and how to navigate that and how I should navigate that, right? When I'm walking down the street with my black friends and the police roll by us and decide to harass us And they put all my friends in a car, but they tell me to go home and stay out of trouble. You know, do I fight against that? Do I, you know, end up in the car with them? And what good does that do? And then my friends are like, why didn't you just leave? (laughs) You know, like, what you should go get help, right? You you use your whiteness to fight against that. Mm -hmm. Or do I just say, okay, I'll go home and not make an issue of it or what? Like, there's so many ethical, moral decisions that as young people, you're not really equipped to have yet, but you're learning those in, in, the, in the crucible of those experiences, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, are, that are really formative you know, in that way. Um, so I really benefited in many ways from having a kind of radical black uh, experience um, motivate me and, and push my concerns for racial equality in ways that were grounded in what it meant to be an ethical person, what it meant to live an ethical life, um, in ways that transcend kind of book learning, or in ways some other people come to this through the social sciences or philosophy, or or what have.
0: Hey, this is great. I appreciate you so much. Thanks. We I have man. the part two going, so we'll talk soon. And uh, just be on the lookout for it, okay? Thanks again. I appreciate all this. Your, Your time is valuable. Thank you so much. Got it, man. We'll talk. All right, Matthew. We'll talk soon. Peace. All right, peace.